When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It would have given me great pleasure to have had some of my family present at my inauguration, which was the most affecting and overpowering scene I ever acted in. I was in great doubt whether to say anything or not besides repeating the oath. And now the world is as silent as the grave. All the Federalists seem to be afraid to approve anybody but Washington. The Jacobin papers damn with faint praise and undermine with misrepresentation and insinuation. If the Federalists go to playing pranks, I will resign the office and let Jefferson lead them to peace, wealth, and power, if he will. From the situation where I now am, I see a scene of ambition beyond all my former suspicions or imaginations, an emulation which will turn our government topsy-turvy. Jealousies and rivalries have been my theme, and checks and balances as their antidotes till I am ashamed to repeat the words, but they never stayed me in the face in such horrid forms as at present. I see how the thing is going. At the next election, England will set up Jay or Hamilton, and France, Jefferson, and all the corruption of Poland will be introduced, unless the American spirit should rise and say, we will have neither. Thirteen days after taking the oath of office, John Adams wrote to his wife Abigail about the frustrations he was facing alone in Philadelphia. His family was all elsewhere. His cabinet was one inherited from his predecessor, who had already made his exit. He couldn't depend on his vice president, Thomas Jefferson, despite the fact that they had been friends for many years, as Jefferson was the leader of the opposition party. Ambitious politicians in his own party were circling on the periphery, ready to take on anyone, Jeffersonian or Federalist, who might get in their way. To add insult to injury, word arrived shortly after Adams wrote this letter to his wife that an international crisis that had been simmering for a while was now a full-fledged wildfire. This, dear friends, is the situation at the beginning of the Adams presidency, and this is where we find ourselves on this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I am, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. Before we dive in, I'd like to thank Mark Painter of the History of the 20th Century podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. I've been listening to Mark's podcast for quite a while and highly recommend it to anyone interested in the history of the last pivotal century. While hitting the highlights, Mark also shines a spotlight on individuals and events not as often discussed. I'll post a link on the source notes page for this episode, or you can go to History of the 20th Century, all spelled out in all one word, dot com, or search for History of the 20th Century anywhere fine podcasts can be found. The U.S. and France had been allies since the signing of the Treaties of Alliance and of Amity and Commerce in 1778. But when Charles Coatsworth Pinckney arrived in Bordeaux, France in mid-November 1796, the nearly two-decade alliance was at the breaking point. 
As discussed in episode 1.34, while Pinckney had been at sea, the French government had notified the U.S., both through French Minister Pierre Augustadet in Philadelphia and through a communication between French Foreign Minister Charles-Francois Delacroix and U.S. Minister to France James Monroe in Paris, that the French government had ordered its navy, quote, to treat American ships as these suffer the English to treat them. The French were upset that the U.S. had made a treaty with Britain which would expand Anglo-American trade at a time when the British were severely hampering French trade. They called out the hypocrisy of the deal to increase trade and thus the flow of U.S. currency to Britain since the British still would not commit to ending their practice of impressment against American ships in which the British would board ships and force sailors to serve in the British Navy taking advantage of the difficulty to prove one's nationality by claiming that they were in fact British citizens. Outgoing U.S. Minister Monroe was distressed at these developments, but he blamed them on the Federalists back at home and took his leave on December 30th by asserting in a speech at the official ceremony marking the end of his tenure in Paris that, quote, I behold victory and the dawn of prosperity upon the point of realizing all the great objects for which you, i.e., French, have so nobly contended. Likewise, in his speech, the president of the directory, Paul Barat, in addition to including a reminder that the U.S. owed its independence to France, assured Monroe that, quote, you have known the true interest of your country. Depart without regret. We restore in you a representative of America, and we preserve the memories of a citizen whose personal qualities did honor to that title. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Incoming Minister Pinckney, meanwhile, had been received for a meeting with French Foreign Minister Delacroix on December 9th, but according to Delacroix's later recounting of the meeting, Pinckney had insulted him by asserting that Delacroix taking his letters of credence meant that he was now the official U.S. Minister to France, to which Delacroix supposedly responded, quote, that the directory decided who would be received. After this meeting, in a break from standard protocol, the foreign minister did not send cards of hospitality to Pinckney, which were basically a diplomatic visa, and without which Pinckney and his party could be arrested. A couple of days later, on the 12th, Pinckney received word that the directory had determined, quote, no longer recognize nor receive a minister plenipotentiary from the United States until after a reparation of the grievances demanded of the American government and which the French Republic has a right to expect. Pinckney's first diplomatic mission was not going well, and he was in what would have been, even for a seasoned diplomat, treacherous waters. Pinckney's secretary tried to get some clarification of Pinckney's official status, as, without the cards of hospitality or some other assurance from the French government, they were all in France illegally. On December 15th, a representative from the Foreign Affairs Office called on Pinckney and asked him if he was, quote, acquainted with the laws of France, as they applied to strangers. 
Pinckney made one final effort to remain, but was informed verbally, in no uncertain terms, that he and his party were to leave, not just Paris, but all of France. While testing the patience of the directory and waiting for a written order to leave France, Pinckney was on hand for the love fest that was Monroe's official farewell and grew infuriated at Barat, claiming that France was responsible for the U.S. being an independent nation. Pinckney had been a general in the war against Britain and felt that Barat's speech was an affront to the honor of the nation. He was finally given the written order to leave France in late January 1797, and on February 5th, the Pinckneys and their entourage departed Paris bound for Amsterdam, where they would wait to receive word from the federal government about how they should proceed, back on the road to Paris or to board a ship for America. They would still be waiting when the Adams administration learned in mid-March what had transpired. Around the same time that Adams learned that Pinckney had not been received by the French government and had been ordered out of the country, he also received reports of American merchant ships being seized by French frigates in the Caribbean. Adams had a few options before him, but at least one door had already closed. French Minister Adet, the only representative of the French government in the U.S. with the authority to negotiate, had already departed from Philadelphia to return home, and there was no replacement in place. As there was no U.S. representative in Paris, a new envoy or envoys would have to be officially appointed and make their way to the French capital before negotiations could begin, assuming, of course, that the directory would receive them, which, as we've seen, was not a guarantee. Economic sanctions could be imposed, or American merchant ships could be armed. French actions could be seen as provocative enough to constitute a declaration of war, but that would have to come from Congress. Indeed, Congress would also be necessary to appoint new envoys or impose trade sanctions or authorize the arming of merchant ships. It quickly became apparent that, no matter what approach Adams wanted to take, Congress would be crucial. There was just one problem. It was March 1797, and Congress wouldn't be back in session until December. Now, it should be mentioned here that, for those who feel that our contemporary Congress spends a good deal of time in recess— The traditional sessions of Congress in the early Republic had the first session start in late fall, November or December, and wrapped up around May or June. Then the second session would start around the same time, but finish in March. The inauguration had marked the start of a new Congress, the fifth Congress, and the first session wasn't scheduled to start until the fall. However, one of the president's powers is that he can call the Congress into special session, which is exactly what Adams did on March 25th. However, To illustrate just how new all of this still was at the time, Adams checked with Secretary of State Timothy Pickering and Attorney General Charles Lee first to verify that he was interpreting the Constitution correctly and did, in fact, have the authority to call for a special session and exactly how it should be done. Given the nature of communication and travel at the time, Adams put the date for the special session to begin as May 15th, which would also give him a month and a half to gather information and advice and to prepare an address outlining what he would ask Congress to do when it arrived back in Philadelphia. Adams, however, would not be the only one preparing a plan on how to respond to the situation with France. When George Washington had been president, Alexander Hamilton had kept up a steady correspondence with the chief executive and had offered him lengthy essays outlining his views on the issues of the day, thus retaining a direct influence on administration policy. However, Hamilton did not enjoy a warm relationship with Adams. 
though I haven't been able to find either the letter itself or an exact date for it. According to Ron Chernow in his Hamilton biography, shortly after the inauguration, Hamilton sent Adams a, quote, long, elaborate letter, which contained a whole system of instruction for the conduct of the President, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. Adams was not amused and said later that, upon reading the letter, he, quote, really thought the man was in a delirium. Here was Hamilton trying to instruct in the machinations of government someone who had spent the last eight years presiding over the Senate and who had been involved in government policy long before Hamilton began his public service. With the direct access to the president he had previously enjoyed cut off, Hamilton would have to seek other means to influence policy. Luckily, he had willing accomplices in Adams's cabinet. Hamilton started with a letter to Secretary of State Pickering on March 22nd, as well as a letter to Secretary of War McHenry, then one to his successor at the Treasury Department, Oliver Walcott. With Pickering and McHenry, Hamilton dictated point by point what he thought each should do in their respective posts, including, funny enough, a recommendation to Pickering that a diplomatic commission should be appointed with either Jefferson or Madison as one of the members. To Walcott, though, he was more reflective and offered a high-level analysis. Like Adams, Hamilton felt that a commission should be sent to France and asserted that, quote, I was particularly desirous that the first measure of the present president's administration should have been that, but it has not happened. Side commentary here. Great job derailing that with your resignation threat, Walcott, but I digress. Continuing with Hamilton, quote, I now continue to earnestly wish that the same measure may go into effect and that the meeting of the Senate may be accelerated for the purpose. While suggesting peace, he also warned, quote, that a suspicion begins to dawn among the friends of the government that the actual administration is not much adverse from war with France. How very important to obviate this. Why was it important to counter this idea, you ask? Of course, it must be related to the negotiations, right? Well, Hamilton goes on to say that, quote, if England is left to bear the burden alone, who can say that France may not venture to sport an army to this country? It may get rid of troublesome spirits. As in the case of England, so now, my opinion is to exhaust the expedience of negotiation and at the same time to prepare vigorously, emphasis in the original on the vigorously, for the worst. Now, Hamilton was not at this point advocating for war, but he didn't feel that the United States should wait to prepare for the possibility. And, if a bipartisan commission was sent and failed to find a peaceful resolution to the crisis, then the country could go into war on a more united front. Meanwhile, the president was doing his own preparation. As expected, Adams did consult with his cabinet on the situation. Right after receiving the news about Pinckney, Adams sent Pickering, Walcott, McHenry, and Lee a request for their written opinions on numerous questions, including whether, quote, a fresh mission to Paris would be took great and humiliation of the American people. Quote, whether any new articles, such as are not contained in either of our treaties with France or England, shall be proposed or can be agreed to if proposed by the French government, and, quote, in what terms shall restitution, reparation, compensation, and satisfaction be demanded for such insults and injuries. Despite Hamilton's support for the scheme, Pickering and Walcott remained cool to the idea of a bipartisan diplomatic commission. Walcott felt the line had already been crossed and that the time for negotiation was at an end. 
Pickering, meanwhile, had already sent a coded message to John Quincy Adams with instructions and negotiations of commercial treaties with Prussia and Sweden to not accept an agreement with the principle that, quote, free ships make free goods. Pickering biographer Gerald Clearfield interprets this as Pickering's preparation for war, as any conflict between the U.S. and France, would involve a naval conflict. And should the U.S. join the British in their naval blockade of France, it would only be effective if they could block ships from neutral vessels from carrying goods to France. This is otherwise known as doing the exact opposite of what the U.S. commercial interest and government had insisted upon for years when it was American ships carrying goods to belligerents. Ultimately, both Pickering and Walcott would come around Hamilton's, or I mean Adams's, idea for a new commission, but it would be Hamilton, along with other Federalist leaders, such as former Senator George Cabot and former Representative Fisher Ames, along with reports coming from U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King, that would convince them. We'll get back to the news from King in a moment, but I did want to share Pickering biographer Gerald Clearfield's take on the situation. Quote, Hamilton realized that the broad cross-section of the American people wanted to avoid an armed clash with France. He was also aware that the moderates in Congress, who controlled the balance of power in both houses, wanted peaceful settlement. Without moderate support, no important legislation for the augmentation of the American military machine could be passed. In Hamilton's mind, one more serious effort at a peaceful settlement with France was, therefore, imperative. As for King, he reported back to the Adams administration the Bank of England's suspension of specie payments, as well as the fall of Mantua, all of which we discussed last episode. With the economic situation, he expressed his pessimism, despite assurances from the British government that, quote, this embarrassment will be but of short duration, and told Pickering that, quote, what misfortunes this event will draw down upon this nation is beyond human foresight to discern. I see but little chance against a national bankruptcy. While all of this was going on, Adams was seeking independent counsel from someone just about to head off to Europe. William Vance Murray was a young Federalist from Maryland who had a long-standing association with the Adams family. Murray had been sent over to study law in England after the Revolution and, as noted by his biographer Peter Hill, quote, was a frequent visitor at the Adams home while they resided in London. From the elder Adams, he received encouragement to expand his political consciousness. He would also form a friendship with John Quincy Adams that would come into play when both men found themselves stationed in Europe. Murray, after returning to the U.S., would be elected first to the Maryland House of Delegates, then would serve in the U.S. House of Representatives, and she'll be nominated by Washington as U.S. Minister to the Batavian Republic the quote-unquote sister republic that had been established in the Netherlands by France after the House of Orange was overthrown. Murray had been a champion of both the Jay Treaty and of Adams's candidacy for president in his tenure in the House, and had demonstrated an independence from Hamilton during his congressional career. His efforts had obviously been well-received enough, or enough encouragement had come from Adams's corner, that Washington had seen fit to nominate him to this key diplomatic post as one of his last acts. Murray took the next couple of months to prepare for the journey, but just prior to his departure, Adams invited Murray and his wife for dinner at the president's house in early April. At this meeting, Adams not only gave the young man advice on how to deal with the Dutch, but also instructed him that, should he be approached about offers to continue negotiations with the French, that he was to reply in the affirmative. 
In this meeting, not only was Adams sending his first official proxy to Europe, but he was also cultivating a source of information on what was happening across the Atlantic, independent of Pickering and the State Department. Murray would head off to Europe as congressional members were making final preparations and hitting the road for Philadelphia. The new Congress would convene on May 15th, and the next day, Adams delivered to them a message outlining in detail what had happened to Pinckney, concluding that the conduct of the French government, quote, discloses sentiments more alarming than the refusal of a minister, because more dangerous to our independence and union, and at the same time studiously marked with indignities toward the government of the United States. It evinces a disposition to separate the people of the United States from the government, to persuade them that they have different affections, principles, and interests from those of their fellow citizens whom they themselves have chosen to manage their common concerns, and thus to produce divisions fatal to our peace. Such attempts ought to be repelled with a decision which shall convince France and the world that we are not a degraded people, humiliated under a colonial spirit of fear and sense of inferiority, fitted to be the miserable instruments of foreign influence, and regardless of national honor, character, and interest. In his message, Adams called for, quote, the defense of the seacoast, the protection of commerce, the strengthening of the navy, and the reorganization of the militia. For someone who is still seeking a diplomatic resolution, it came across as a rather belligerent message, both to the pro-French Democratic Republicans and to the French government when the message made its way across the Atlantic. Like Hamilton, though, Adams was taking a pragmatic approach to the situation. He knew full well how woefully unprepared for war the nation was. And, as someone who had served as the de facto war secretary during the American Revolution, Adams realized just what steps needed to be taken in order to get the nation ready for the possibility of war. Just as the U.S. government was starting to discuss the possibility of war, elements were brewing which would ignite a firestorm in political circles. In Philadelphia, a Scottish-born pamphleteer and journalist named James Callender was making preparations to print a series of pamphlets entitled The History of the United States in 1796, beginning in late June. While the title sounds innocent enough, the true subject of the pamphlet series was not to be the United States, but rather the former Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton, and it would not stop with an examination of his official conduct while in office. Dear listener, the time is finally here for the Reynolds Affair, discussed way back in episode 1.14, to see the light of day. As if this wasn't enough, cue dramatic music and switch to a scene of a ship cutting across the ocean bound for the United States, carrying former U.S. Minister to France, James Monroe. Monroe, already upset at having been removed from his post in Paris and blaming the Federalists for the breakdown of relations with France, could not have known that he would be arriving back on American soil just as the secret of Hamilton's affair, a secret that only he and a handful of others were supposed to have been privy to, was about to be made public knowledge. Little could Monroe have known that he was about to have his reunion with friends and family marred with accusations that he had broken the vow of discretion. We shall learn next time just how all of this turns out in an episode I'd like to call Scandals and Observations. Until then, 
I'd like to thank Mark Painter again for reading this episode's intro quote and invite you to check out his podcast, The History of the 20th Century. If you have any questions or comments, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, all one word, or you can send me an email at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Sources used for this episode can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. If you have a moment and you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on iTunes, Podchaser, or anywhere else that you may be listening to the podcast from that allows ratings and reviews. Or you can share the podcast with friends and loved ones. Word of mouth has helped the audience to expand exponentially since the first episode launched last year, so I greatly appreciate it any time you can put a good word in. Finally, but most importantly, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate the time each of you puts into listening to each episode. Until we meet again next time, take care, dear friends. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.